0: away and the sea was no more and I saw a holy city the new jerusalem coming out of heaven from god prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and i heard a loud voice from the throne saying see the home of god is among mortals he will dwell with them and they will be his people and god himself will be with them he will wipe away every tear from their eyes Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy and they are true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and I am the Omega. The beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things. And I will be their God, and they will be my children.
1: Good morning, church. Good morning. We're glad that everyone could be here today with us. Uh, my name is Cody King. I'm one of the connections pastors here. And um, if you're joining us for the first time, we're in week seven of our series uh, called Signs. So once again, I want to welcome you. Glad you're here. I want to welcome everybody that's joining us in Edgewood or those that may be watching online. We're glad that you're spending time with us this morning. So if this is your first time here, um, you know we're in week seven. We're in chapter ten of the book of Revelation. And as we've been walking through this, if you've missed, I encourage you to go online and uh, check out the previous sermons, and it will help, it'll catch you up and just kind of help you if you're going to stick with us and move forward. But quickly, I want to run through just kind of an outline as to, as to how we got where we're at. So, so the book of Revelation, we start in chapter one. We didn't start in chapter two. We started <laughs> in chapter one. But um, John, he, he gets the vision of, of the Son of Man right in verse 19, uh, Jesus tells him, he says, therefore, write the things um, that you have seen, write the things those that are and those that are to take place after this, right? So write the things that you have seen. And what he has seen is the vision of the son of man. And he says, write the things that are and those that are is, is is the church age. It's the letters that he's writing to the church. It's the age that we're in now. And then he says, then you're gonna write those things that are to take place after this. After the church age, so you're going to write about future events, things that are that are that are to come after the church age. So he writes the letters to the churches right after he writes the letters in two and chapters two and three. In chapter four, he is caught up right in the spirit into heaven, and then he sees he gets the vision of the throne, the vision of the lamb, the vision of of the scroll. Right, and then the lamb goes and takes the scroll. Right? And then it has seven seals, and then the lamb begins to, to open these seals, and as he opens these seals, right, judgments begin to take place. And as these judgments, as we read about these judgments taking place and the seals being opened, just the judgments intensify as he continues to open these up. And Brandon last week, like he said, that these judgments, the intensity, the intensifying of these judgments is like labor pains. It's the closer you get to, to birth, the more painful these contractions are, ready, the more painful these labor pains are going to be. And they intensify, right? Then between the sixth and seventh seals, we get the first interlude where we're amidst all of this judgment, we get a break in all that. And we see God's mercy amidst this judgment. And then he seals the 144,000, right? So he's still offering salvation through these judgments. Then chapter eight, the judgments continue uh, with the opening of the seventh seal. And the seventh seal brings about the seven trumpets, Right, and then in the seventh trumpets, we have a third of everything is destroyed. Right? and then as we continue reading, you get through the sixth trumpet, and we have the three woes. Right, the fifth trumpet being the first woe, the sixth trumpet being the second woe. And as you're reading, you're expecting the seventh trumpet that's about to be sound. And much like the seventh before the seventh seal, we have another interlude. So the at the end of chapter nine, you get the sixth sixth trumpet blown, the second woe. And then the saddest verses in all of Scripture that in light of all of this judgment, there's still going to be those that do not repent. Their heart is still going to remain hard. And chapter 9 ends and it brings to chapter 10. In chapter 10, once again, we have this interlude. Right? John gets, he, he gets this vision of, of, of another angel coming down from heaven. Right? And, and when he gets this vision, it's, it's not like the others. Right. The others, he's just seeing and he's writing, seeing and writing, seeing and writing. But it gets to the point here, where where judgment's kind of stopped for a minute, and we get this break in it. And as we'll see here through chapter ten, that likely John may be able to put his pen down for a moment and breathe as he is recording all this. And at the end of chapter ten, just we see an exhortation and an encouragement to John. So chapter ten, verse one, it says, "Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven." wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs his legs like pillars of fire right? so some would suggest that this angel is is Jesus right because the question always comes up you know it's a mighty angel right so when we see angel a lot of times through revelations revelation we have questions we're curious as to what specifically the angels are so a lot of people ask who is this angel and some have said and suggest that it is Jesus right by the description given And though the description is similar, but it's different at the same time. The word there, another angel. The word another in the Greek is alos, which means another of the same sort. So the same sort of what? But If we look at how John has been writing here, with the trumpets, he says the first angel blew his trumpet. The second angel blew his trumpet. The third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, and so on. So here he sees another angel. Another of the same sort coming down from heaven. And he says that it's a mighty angel. Unlike the previous angels who just who he saw blow a trumpet, this is a mighty angel. He's coming with authority and with rank. He's coming down from heaven. He's coming in power and mercy and in holiness. And in power. He's wrapped in a cloud. Remember. Um, in Exodus when uh, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and he descended upon Mount Sinai in a pillar of fire and smoke and cloud around, around the mountain, right? And he told Moses, tell the people, no one is to touch this mountain. That's just the power of God on display right there in the cloud. But then all at the same time, the rainbow over his head is just God's mercy. Right? Remember the rainbow signifies you know, God's promise that he will never again flood the earth, right? As if he's holding back his bow Over the earth, and you see God's mercy there, and then also His holiness, and His face was like the sun. And all these descriptions are very much alike to chapter one and His vision of the sun, but yet He says it's another angel, another of the same sort. And a lot of times we can get bogged down trying to focus in on something such as this, but the focus of chapter 10 is not the angel, verse 2 gives us the focus of the chapter and the subject of it. And he had a little scroll open in his hand. And he said his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Right? So this message that he has, this little scroll, contains a mer- message that concerns the entirety of the earth. With one foot on the land, one foot on the sea, he's coming down from heaven. The entirety of creation is included in this description here. So this little scroll contain- concerns the entire earth. And then in verse 3, he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. So if the focus here is the little scroll, that brings up the question, what is the little scroll? All right Again, some suggest that it's the same scroll from chapter 5, right the scroll that the lamb went and took from him on the throne, right that had the seven seals you know, that were broken. But it's little in comparison to the angel's size. Right? So if you have an angel coming down from heaven, and he's big enough to have one foot on land, one foot in the sea, and it's a little scroll, I'm just, you know... <laughs> It's like, I mean, you know, but if it's the same, if it's proportionate, you know, it'd be a scroll, but it says a little scroll. So it's like a little scroll, but it doesn't say a big scroll or a scroll. It just says a little scroll, all right? But in the Greek, the word in each case used in each case is different, all right? In one, the scroll is described as biblion or book, right? Whereas here, the diminutive form of the word is bibliridian, which is used to describe a little scroll or a little book. I mean, like a booklet. But we can't know, we won't know for sure what exactly the scroll is or what exactly it says, because John doesn't specifically say what it is or what's written in it. But I believe that it is a small part to a larger whole. Well, what do you mean by that? If the larger whole is, is the revelation itself, I believe it's to be a small part of that, being that, that it's, it's little, it's like a booklet, it is it's is open. Right? It's not concealed, it's not hidden, though the seven seals have been broken and that scroll is now open, but I believe this to be a smaller part of that whole. I believe it speaks to the judgment that is, that is to come, the continuing, coming judgment. Verse 3 lends, lends itself to that. The angel called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. In the Old Testament, the prophets oftentimes um they would describe the Lord as roaring whenever he spoke judgment you know, against the nation of Israel or spoke judgment against other nations that came against Israel. Uh, in Jeremiah 25, the Lord tells Jeremiah, You therefore shall prophesy against them all these words and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high and from his holy habitation utter his voice. He will roar mightily against his, fo- his fold and shout like those who tread grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. The clamor will resound to the ends of the earth for the Lord has an indictment against the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh and the wicked he will put to the sword declares the Lord. So he is entering into judgment on all flesh. But He is roaring. He will, he will roar from on high. Joel 3.16 says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. So when he's, so when, when the Lord roars, judgment is coming, right? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Right? That is the coming judgment of the Lord. The lamb offers salvation. The lion offers, brings judgment. But in the latter part of verse three, when he called out, the seven thunders sounded, right? So the angel calls out in a loud voice and gets a response from Seven thunders. But note that it says the seven thunders. It doesn't say just, just he calls out and gets a response from just random thunders somewhere in the heavens. But it says the seven thunders. And that's very curious to me. It makes me curious as to, well, who are the seven thunders? You know, where do they come from? Right? So the seven thunders sounded. It's, he's speaking to a specific group that responds to this roar, This shout. In verse 4, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So imagine you're John. You've been writing all this. You see see Jesus, right? Jesus whom you know, Jesus whom you walked with for three years. And after, after decades of persecution and suffering, You know, being boiled alive at one point, then exiled on this island. You're all alone, and then all of a sudden, you see Jesus. You get this vision, and he tells you to start writing stuff down. So then he just starts writing stuff down. He's writing and writing and writing. And then all of a sudden, he gets visions of the the throne, of this lamb, and and then judgment, seals and all this, and he's just writing. He sees it, he writes it. He sees it, he writes it. He sees it, he writes it. And then he gets to this point here where he sees everything, he's writing everything, and then he hears this voice cry out. He hears the thunders sound. He understands what they say, and he begins to write what they say. And he Hold up, stop. Don't write that down. What? Why can't I write that? I mean, it just really makes me curious. Like, what could it possibly be that John was able to hear from these thunders that we can't hear? Like, why can't we hear that? Why is that not meant for us? Why does John get to hear it we don't get to hear it? It reminds me of the end of John's gospel. He's he's talking about Jesus all through his gospel. But at the end of it, he says that um, many, many more signs and wonders, many more things Jesus did that are not contained here. He says, if we were to write all of them, I suppose the world would not be able to contain or hold the books. That's how much Jesus did that we don't even know that John got to see that we'll never hear about. We'll never know. And here, the seven thunder sound, here's a voice saying, seal up what they said and do not write them down. And the word seal there in the Greek is shakgizo, and only here and in chapter 22, verse 10, does it mean to keep hidden or to conceal. That word for seal is used several, several times throughout the New Testament. But every time it's used throughout the New Testament, other than here, it's used to just signify or identify or authenticate a message that's given or place someone's seal on someone else, right? The Holy Spirit places his seal on us you know, from the day of judgment. Right? But here, the usage in the context is to keep hidden or conceal. This that you just heard, John, close it up, secure it, don't ever let anyone know what you just heard. I'm like, why is that? Why don't we get to know what it is that was spoken? But simply, there are things that just aren't meant for us. I think that's that's something we've got to come to just as, as, as a church, as a people, but then also individuals. There's just some things that aren't for us. Paul speaks to this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 4. He says, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter the simple fact is, is that we are on a need-to-know basis. There's some things that we don't need to know, other things that we do need to know. But the Word of God, I mean, contains all things that pertain to life and godliness is given to us. That's what we need to know in God's Word. But there are some things that are clearly said in God's Word to a prophet, but are not for us to hear, and it's to be sealed up. Some things are not meant for us. So so we don't need to proceed through this as if everything has been revealed to us. And in our hubris, make predictions on when things are going to happen and how things are going to happen for Jesus to return. To sit here and make predictions and say, these things are going to happen in order and then Jesus is going to return is vastly arrogant in light of the information that we don't have here. The seven thunder sound. And they were John was to seal it up. We just do not have all the information, but all that we need to know is that Jesus is coming, that judgment is coming, and that we should act and live accordingly. To that. So, verse five, he continues, and the angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and was and the earth the earth and what was in it and the sea and what was in it, that there would be no more delay. So the angel swears, puts his hand towards heaven, and swears by him who lives forever and ever. He's swearing by the throne, him who sits on the throne, right? He singles out his eternity, that he's outside space and time, that he lives forever and ever. And then also his activities in creation, right? Created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. Again, creation itself, everything, he leaves nothing out. That the Lord, the one that sits on the throne, is sovereign over all of it. Space, time, entirety of creation. He swears by him there. Leon Morris says this. He says, that, this brings out the point that what follows is not some panic device to which a surprised deity must resort in reaction to unexpected machinations of evil men and evil spirits. He is supreme over time and over creation. He fulfills what he plans 2 Peter says in three nine. Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He is not slow, as some count slowness. But here that we read that there is coming a day, and this angel swears by it, that there will be no more delay. Time will run out. God's patience will run out. Peter says he is patient with you now, but there will come a day where he will no longer be patient. And the prayers of the saints in Revelation 6 will be answered. Right. Who's, ever said, who's ever said the Lord's Prayer? All right. Our Father who art in heaven, heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you've ever prayed that prayer, there's coming a day where there will be no more delay. That prayer will be answered. His kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There will be no delay. And then verse 7. But on the contrary, it says, that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. So what is the mystery of God? In the New Testament, We hear several times, you know, Paul speaks several times about the mystery of God. In Ephesians 1, he says that God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So he's speaking that that God is going to, he makes known the mystery of his will. But again, what is the mystery of his will? And it had to be revealed to us, this mystery. How did, how, did, how did God how did God save His people?? No one, not even the smartest people in the Old Testament, the smartest people of the day, no one could ever come up with or predict how far God would go to save mankind. That He would send his own Son, He would leave heaven, and He would go to the cross and die a sinner's death to pay the penalty for our sin so that we could eternally be with Him instead of be eternally separated from Him. No one could ever predict that's how God would do it. That's the length that He would go, right? That had to be revealed to us. That is the mystery of God. And not only that, 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 that salvation is not just for the Jewish people that God set apart, but it's for the Gentile, It's for the entire world. And it's a mystery that had to be revealed to us. And here... The angel says that that, that there's going to be no delay in the days of the trumpet to be sounded by the seventh angel. The mystery of God will be not revealed, but will be fulfilled. Salvation will be made complete. His people will be vindicated. And we will see the full manifestation of God's power, his majesty, his righteousness, and his holiness. All that manifested in Jesus' return and his establishment of his kingdom. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror, mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. There's going to come a day where the mystery of God is going to be fulfilled. We are going to know exactly who Jesus is. We're going to know fully the character of God. We're going to see his judgment. We're going to see his righteousness. We're not going to see his mercy anymore, but at the same time, we're going to see his majesty, his power, his might, his sovereignty, his greatness, his wonder. All of those things are going to be made clear to us. We are going to, Bell's going to be completely taken off. Our eyes are going to be completely open, and we're going to know who God is in that day. Just as he announced to his servants, the prophets, Amos 3, 7, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Again, Leon Morris says this, that God has one purpose through the ages, and it comes to its climax at this point. From the very beginning, he has planned to bring his people to salvation, and thus his whole purpose is coming to its culmination. It involves the judgment of evil, but also the deliverance and vindication of his people. There will be no delay. The mystery of God will be fulfilled. And he continues in verse, verse 8. Says, then the voice that I had heard from the heaven spoke to me again, saying, go take the scroll that is in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll and from, from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. So that's odd. Eat a scroll, sweet and bitter. But similarly, again, Old Testament prophets, right? Where Jesus, you know, he has announced to his servants the prophets, right? He does nothing without revealing it, you know, to his prophets. So you have here in Jeremiah uh, 15, 16, Jeremiah says, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and a delight in the delight of my heart. Ezekiel, at the end of chapter, chapter 2, beginning in chapter 3, he says, But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation, of mourning, and woe. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Now, neither of these accounts here say anything to bitterness. Only the sweetness of God's word on their mouth. The sweetness of God's word to those who taste and believe it. But whenever God's word, whenever it speaks to judgments and woes on people, Right? On unbelievers, those that don't believe in God, evil as they may be, right? it's also bitter at the same time. But is it the scroll that's actually bitter? And why bitter? Why is it bitter? I can understand sweet, but why bitter? Right? Some commentators would say that it's because of the persecutions that believers must endure and go through. Namely, those persecutions and things that are about to come, the judgments that are about to come. Right? This day and age, I mean, even the church in the church age, we experience persecution, right? Scripture tells us pretty much promises us, us believers, we're going to suffer. We're going to go through trials. We're going to face persecutions. We are all significantly blessed to be to be born in the United States of America though things are maybe turning or have been turning for quite a while, but still, we don't face the same persecution that other places of the world face. China, it's very dangerous to proclaim the name of Jesus in the country of China. Syria, they face persecution as Christians there. Here, the South faces different persecution maybe than the North, right? East and West. Nonetheless, we face persecution, but where does that persecution come from? That, that is all external. Persecution is, is external. It's how it, it comes from the outside to us. But it's very important to note but it's John's belly, his stomach, that is made bitter. It's it will make versus it will be. If we go back to verse 9, it says, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. The Word of God is not bitter. The Word of God is sweet as honey on your mouth. It will be sweet as honey. That describes the Word and what it is. But when it is internalized, when it is consumed, when it is devoured, when it's appropriated within us, when it hits the belly, when it hits the stomach, it makes the stomach bitter. It's not bitter. It makes the stomach bitter. But why? Why is that? I believe it's when, when we internalize the Word of God, when we study the Scriptures and we read and we consume it, and we let the love of God begin to grow within us, when we are continually being conformed to the likeness of Jesus, our mindset changes. The way we view the world around us changes. We no longer view the world through our eyes, but through Jesus' eyes, right? We, never view, we no longer view people the way we would, but the way Jesus would. And when we begin viewing the world around us and people around us the way Jesus does, when we get to a point where we realize, like John, in writing all of these things, that there's going to be a vast number of people in this world that are still going to be so hard-hearted, they're not going to rep- repent, despite a third of the world dying. That is a bitter story to tell. if you genuinely have love for the people around you. Proclaiming the judgment of God, such as in 9, chapter 9, verse 18, that a third of mankind would be killed. That's not something that's happened in the past. That's something that's going to happen in the future. And we take that, if, if, if we consider that, um, if we take the, the present population of the earth right now, Right. There's there's seven roughly seven point three billion people. Right. We're going to say seven for round number's sake. It's easier to do math. But seven billion people. So say say at the rapture of the church, there's roughly two billion cr- uh, Christians in the world. So at the rapture of the church, two billion people are gone. Right? We're 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 caught up in the spirit in the clouds with Jesus. Praise God. Right? So that leaves five billion people left on earth. In the fourth seal, it says that that a fourth of the earth, fourth of mankind would be killed in the fourth seal. Right, so you take a fourth of that five billion. Right, that's one and a quarter billion people right there dead. And in the second woe in the sixth trumpet, see that a third of mankind, a third of that number is killed. That's another one and a quarter billion people. So altogether, to this point, what we're reading: two point five billion people, give or take if it even matters, 2.5 billion people will die apart from Jesus Christ. That's a bitter story to tell. I mean, it, it, and, and that bitterness comes from, I mean, you know, when, when, we, when we teach and we proclaim the name of God, you know, we don't gleefully speak of the judgments written in God's word. Right? Last week, Brandon didn't get up here and gleefully tell you about a third of mankind getting killed. Not to mention a third of of the vegetation, a third of the animals, a third of the birds of the air, a third of the animals in the sea, a third of everything died. We don't gleefully proclaim that. That's a bitter story to tell. And here John is told to tell it. Verse 11 makes clear the scroll is concerned with the message that he, John, and we must proclaim. And I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. John, pick up your pen. We got more. We got more to go. And it's bitter. It's bitter to have to tell that. When you're, when we're, if we're sharing the gospel with someone, if we're just sitting down having a Jesus gospel conversation with someone, that is sweet on the mouth. That is the word of God that is just sweet on the lips. But eventually in that conversation, you're going to come to a point where that person that you're sharing Jesus with, they're going to have to come to terms with the fact that they are a sinner. And because they're a sinner, they're no good, and they're separated from a holy God for eternity. That's bitter. That's a bitter realization. But it doesn't change the fact that it is sweet on the lips. I believe that if it's sweet on the mouth going in, and it may make our stomachs bitter, it's going to be sweet on the mouth coming back out when we speak and we tell people about it. Because as much as this is about coming judgment and bitterness in telling that, it's about it's about coming coming Christ. It's about Jesus coming back. That is sweet. Church, that should be the sweetest thing on our lips that Jesus is coming back. though in righteous judgment, he is coming back. If we are in the church, Come, Lord Jesus, come. And that is sweet on our lips. That is what we should be proclaiming. But people do need to know that if you are outside of that, if you do not believe in Jesus, if you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus, he's going to come roar like a roaring lion. And you will be judged. And bitterness will not even come close to describing the torment that you're going to go through. but imagine for a moment, if you will, and you can close your eyes if if you want to, if it helps you to imagine. I want you to think about one person. One person that you know does not know Jesus. Just one individual, not two, not three, not four, one that you know doesn't know Jesus. That if the rapture were to happen tomorrow, they are left behind. Now imagine the confusion, the fear that this person may feel. Maybe trying to find you and all of this calamity that begins to happen. Seeking answers, but not really being able to get a clear one and all this. And this person, and then, and then imagine this person having to go through these plagues as these seals begin to open and just famines happen and just mountains crumble. Into the sea and just disappear. Imagine this person. Just what is going on? Does it make your stomach a little bitter? And I don't say that to put any. any I don't. I don't put. I don't want to put anybody on a guilt trip. I don't. I don't. I don't want to take the mood way down here. But that's that's the bitterness of of the message. That if we don't start, if we don't, if we can't look at people through those eyes and think that way, we've heard it before. That 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 we can tell people all day long about the second coming of Christ, but if we can't tell them about the first coming of Christ, which makes all the difference in a person's life in light of the second coming, then we're not doing, we're not doing what we're called to do. We can speak of judgment and all of that, but if we're not speaking of salvation, it does people no good to know about judgment other than to know it's coming. But you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. John, pick up your pen and get ready. Because in the coming weeks, things aren't going to get better before they get worse. That's not how it works. Things are going to get worse before they get better. But the end result is that it is better. Jesus is coming in all his glory and wonder and majesty. And his church are going to reign with him for eternity. No tears, no pain no sorrow, none of that, all those other words and actions to describe poorly what it's going to be like when Jesus comes. But in the meantime, it's a bitter story to tell, but we must share that. Lord, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for, thank you for your word. Thank you for your revelation, Lord. Thank you for for letting us know, Lord, what we need to know. Lord, help us in our hearts, Lord, in our minds to not desire to know things that we don't need to know. Though we're curious, Lord, we know that from your word that one day when your mystery is, is fulfilled, Lord, we're gonna know. Until then, Lord, I pray that we just trust in what you've given us, Lord. That all things that pertain to life and godliness is given to us, Lord. Lord. I pray that you just move within our hearts, Lord, to to share that. To share what is sweet on our lips, Lord, though bitter in our stomachs, Lord. Help us to love others and see others the way you see others, Lord, that we we would simply speak and share. But be bold enough to be real. And to speak truth and not water things down, Lord. I pray for each and every person that was thought of here tonight. Or this morning. Lord, and it may be the person that was thinking was thinking of themselves, Lord. And I pray for their heart. I pray for their mind, Lord. Alleviate confusion. Give clarity, Lord. Draw them, Lord. Lord, so that they will not see you coming in judgment as a roaring lion, Lord, but see you coming as a lamb bringing salvation. Lord, just help us as a church to walk that out, Lord. We love you and we thank you, and it's in your name we pray.